disappearance of Cher Height profiles the sex researcher who rose to acclaim in the 1970s before the media turned against her. I'm Tom Powers, and this is Pure Nonfiction. The disappearance of Cher Height explores the best-selling author in all her complexity. In 1976, she published The Height Report that compiled hundreds of survey responses from women about their sexuality. The book became a major bestseller and sparked new conversations about female orgasm, clitoral stimulation, and masturbation, challenging a long history of falsehoods. Height was different from earlier sex researchers rooted in academia, such as Alfred Kinsey or Masters and Johnson. Height had been alienated from institutions as a graduate student and made a living as a model, including for Playboy. She was empowered by the women's movement to take up research on her own, overcoming countless hurdles of discrimination. Not even her own publisher saw the book's potential until she held a press conference. She looked like a movie star and was at first embraced by television talk shows with her frank discussions like this interview. Well, masturbation is really a cause for celebration because it represents female sexuality underground. The majority of women, even since Kinsey's time, know how to masturbate to orgasm easily, regularly, with great pleasure. So this shows that women know how to have orgasms when they want, contrary to the popular stereotype. There was a time when height was everywhere in American culture. She had a Fifth Avenue apartment and threw star-studded parties. She published a follow-up book based on surveys of men about their sexuality and inner lives. The film contains a montage of what she learned. What did your father tell you about how to be a man? 25. I've always been emotional. I cried very easy as a child. Not from being hurt physically, but mentally. My father would sometimes tell me to shut up, and I tried, but it was hard. I never was close to my father. We just discussed matters of minor importance to us, like soccer results and acts of the government. He was the hard parent, and I respected him and had fear of his anger. The renowned book editor Robert Gottlieb remembers Height giving him a stack of the men's responses. Over and over again they said the same thing. We have no one to talk to. We can't share things with people, even our wives. I have no warmth nor closeness in my life. The only feeling of warmth that I get is when I'm through with work and I'm free to do what I want. We're isolated. In the wake of the Height Report on Male Sexuality, the tone in the media shifted against her. It was the 1980s. America was growing more conservative and TV talk shows more combative. She grew increasingly defensive with interviewers. Why is Cher Hyde so sensitive about criticism? Whenever people you know, criticize you're doing your exactly book, what you're doing exactly... May I finish my question? No, whenever? and in fact, I think that you're going to keep on like this during the entire thing. And you're, you know what you're doing? Excuse me, I don't care to have this part filmed. You know what you're doing? Exactly what the men in the book do. And then you're going to say, you've been accused of man bashing. You're going to... You've been turn accused... Turn that thing off. You've been accused of man bashing. Yeah, and it's going right? to happen right here. So do you want to do a decent interview or do you want to leave? The backlash against Height grew so intense that she moved to Germany in the 1990s and renounced her American citizenship. She died in 2020 in relative obscurity. It was after Height's death 
that filmmaker Nicole Noonan felt inspired to tell her story. Nicole teamed up with NBC News Studios. They gained access to Heights archives, including a wealth of unpublished personal writing. Those passages are read by Dakota Johnson, the actress known for films such as Fifty Shades of Grey and The Lost Daughter. Here's a section read by Johnson that expresses Heights' love for classical music as she reflects on how to stay grounded. Plan for not being a stereotyped creation of your society. Number one, spend three days alone. Number two, take yourself seriously. Number three, whenever caught in a situation where you are made to feel girlish and helpless, bitchy and aggressive, or any other stereotype, leave immediately and do any action which you enjoy and is yours. Nicole has been a co-director on multiple documentaries. Her first film was The Rape of Europa, based on the book about artwork looted during World War II. Her most recent film was Crip Camp, directed with James Lebrecht, about the rise of the disability rights movement. That film found success by every measure. It was released by Netflix and had the backing of executive producers Barack and Michelle Obama. The film was used extensively as a teaching tool and was nominated for an Academy Award. That's a place of privilege for a filmmaker, but also creates expectations over what comes next. I started our conversation by asking Nicole how she chose to focus on share height. Well, I really do believe that projects find you, and I don't usually like sit around and actually expend time kind of trying to find projects. Um, it's usually something I read or something I hear or a situation I'm thrown in the middle of that you know results in something that I just can't shake or feel really passionate about. And for me, it was um, you know we were in the middle of. <laughs> an online Oscar campaign, basically, for Crip Camp um, in 2020 uh, during the pandemic when I read the obituary in the New York Times of um, for Cher Height. And I had thought about her a lot, actually, in the intervening years between when I read the book when I was 12 and, um, you know, found it hidden in my mother's bedside table. And and that fall, when I read the obituary and the headline was uh, Cher Height, she explained how women orgasm and she was hated for it. And I just had that kind of heart-pounding feeling that you have when you come on to something that you know you're going to want to explore because the Height Report had meant so much to me over the years, but it was something I'd never even talked about with anybody else, you know? I couldn't tell, tell my mom <laughs> about what I was reading because we didn't talk about things like that, but also she had hidden the book from me, you know? I certainly wasn't talking to my friends about it. I was going to college, um, you know, at Oberlin in the 1980s, and I was kind of busy both exploring sexuality, and, you know, I remember I went to a Susie Bright workshop at Oberlin and whatnot, but on the other hand, I really was being impacted by the backlash against feminism and... I didn't want to be a, a radical feminist for reasons that I kind of now understand better. Um, so I just thought, here's this woman who changed my life by reading the words of other women who responded to her surveys. I had constantly the reassurance that what I was feeling was kind of normal or on the spectrum of uh, what other women experienced 
um, even if there isn't such a thing as normal. And, um, and also that there's just such a variety of human sexual experience that anything I was responding to or feeling was sort of okay. And, um, and so, yeah, I wanted to know how did she do the work and, and why did people hate her and why had everybody forgotten her? And, and, you know, then I had a chance meeting, um, with Molly O'Brien at NBC news studios, which was sort of a general right before the Oscars, um, you know, you should think of us for your future projects kind of meeting. And she told me that they were developing a film on a female sex researcher from the 1970s. And I just about like jumped through the zoom screen and said like, Oh, Molly, is it share height? <laughs> because if it's share height, I really want to make that film. Cause I started researching it and thinking about it. But to me, it seemed like such, such a sensational story that I kind of assumed that Hollywood was all over it and it was kind of hopeless from a rights perspective, but we realized that we um, had access to her archive at Harvard and, um, and you know, that NBC had all this material. So that kind of kicked us off going down the road together. And um, it's been an incredible journey. I want to go back to you first reading uh, the Height Report um, when you were 12. Can you describe what your mindset was uh, at the time? Yeah, um, my mindset at when I was 12 was that um, sexuality was this sort of mysterious, um, you know, black hole um, that I would occasionally get tiny little, you know, glimpses of light coming, kind of coming through the, the cracks, but basically couldn't access. I would read Judy Bloom, and there'd be a little there. Um, I remember there was something about sexuality and Anne Frank that was really compelling to me. Um, but basically what I was getting was, you know, occasional peeks at our bodies ourselves when I would go to my friends who had hippie parents' houses um, and no one was watching me. Um, and a blue pamphlet that my mother gave me that I remember had drawings of male and female bodies that didn't even have genitals or nipples on them. <laughs> wasn't very helpful. So, um, I, yeah, I, I just, I, I was very, un, and I, you know, you don't really question exactly directly when you're young, like why, why is this huge aspect of life so forbidden from conversation, you know? Um, but reading the book, I realized not only, the, you know, was it kind of like falling down the rabbit hole into this kind of wonderland of a variety of women's experiences, but, I could feel in the in the responses that it was special that those women were revealing themselves to share height and that it was kind of a rare and groundbreaking thing that people were talking about this at all, you know? So um so yeah, I mean that that was sort of my my sense at the time. Was that was your experience contextualized with other books? I mean, underneath that book in the drawer, was there uh, you know, copies of other 1970s books or or was that a kind of singular experience for you? I remember she also had a book called Your Erogenous Zones. Do you remember that one? I do remember that book. <laughs> that was like completely bizarre to me. I didn't it didn't it didn't really help me too much, um, though it was intriguing um, and fear of flying you know, which was also really amazing to read. The interest in share height was, uh, was planted, um, a long time ago. 
had you followed her career over the, uh, over the years, or had there been a long gap until you read her obituary? There had been a very long gap. I mean, I I thought about the book a lot, actually, um, but I didn't think about her. I think I was too young and too being kept from mainstream television. My parents didn't have cable, you know, et cetera, to really um, kind of come to know her public persona um, or to see her become kind of the victim of the backlash that the books engendered. And so um, so who she was was a complete mystery to me, you know, and there was a photograph of her in the obituary and, you know, she looks like a 1930s screen siren, you know. And then you're reading that she used to model for Playboy and whatnot. And it's like, you know, you know, there's some incredible story there. How did this person come to accomplish what she accomplished? Which I know changed not my life, but the lives of millions and millions of women and men around the world, Um, you know, and then become forgotten. Uh, So you partner with NBC News Studios you gain access to Share Heights archives. And um, I'm curious to know more about those archives because you have a lot of personal writing in the film that's read by Dakota Johnson. Uh, and I wasn't sure whether that came from the memoir that Share Heights uh, once published or if it's from a variety of different sources. It comes from her autobiography in some places. And, uh, and those places are delineated by text that you see on the screen, um, you know, graphic text. And otherwise, those are writings from the Schlesinger uh, Library at Harvard. And Cher had negotiated to give her entire um, archive to them um, before she passed away. And they had, it had been a very tricky negotiation and they'd put a lot of work into it and they had been sure that it would be really compelling and important to have. And then apparently it lay there untouched for a good number of years um, until we came, you know, calling and they were thrilled that we were going to be engaging with it, but we were, you know, among the first people to kind of go through it um, piece by piece. And what was in there was truly extraordinary and exciting. You know, if I had any questions about, could this be a film learning about the contents of that archive quickly answered it because, you know, not only did they have copies of not, not a complete set, but a lot of the original handwritten surveys that respondents sent her for her books, but, you know, and, and the envelopes they came in and all this wonderful ephemera, but um, they had audio cassette tapes from the survey respondents that they had mailed in when they were tired of typing because she was asking people, you know, over a hundred questions about their sex lives and, and, and gender and all of these things so but also they had uh she was very hypographic she wrote all the time as it turns out you know throughout her entire life and dating way back to you know even before she came to New York when she was a very young woman they had um her her writings which were often on just like pages of you know a typewriter paper she would throw them in a typewriter and type or notebooks that she was writing in or in some cases, uh, backs of opera programs or sticky note pads, you know, she just was writing constantly and it was easy to, well, not easy, but it was possible to figure out when she wrote those things and then, um, and then align them with that time in the story that we were telling so that we are giving the viewer access to 
what she was actually thinking about feminism or sexuality or the modeling industry or various things as she was experiencing them herself because she really was coming home at night and just you know writing out her thoughts and um and that was really exciting because she was such a mischaracterized kind of flattened caricature of herself by the time the media had its way with her that we really badly wanted to give people access to her and let them experience for themselves the kind of brilliant, unusual way that she was thinking about our society um, in a more, you know, fully human way. So they're read by Dakota Johnson. How did she get brought into the project? So we asked her if she would be willing to participate. Um, I was really excited after watching The Lost Daughter again and thinking about that kind of uh, phenomenal job she did in that film, especially with a character who's so kind of strong and feminine at the same time. Um, and I was excited about the fact that Dakota, you know, is a co-creative director in a, um, a intimacy product company called Mod, and she has really kind of put herself out there as somebody who's a proponent of sex positivity and female sexual health and wellness. And um, so I thought she might be interested to know about Cher and um, I was kind of preparing myself to explain who Cher Height was to her when she uh, called back and said she was interested in the project. But what I found was that she was already a big fan of Cher Heights. She said, I, I just want to let you know, I love Cher Height. If I could have dinner with her tomorrow, I, I would. She's my kind of person, you know. Um, so there was a real compatibility there with, um, with both, you know, I think the story really resonated for Dakota and was politically aligned um, with her point of view, but also that of Ro Donnelly, her producing partner, and they have a company called Tea Time Pictures, and so so Tea Time also be, you know joined the project as well, and um, it's been fantastic actually working working with both of them, and um, and you know I think Dakota added something to the film that was kind of beyond my capacity to imagine in terms of when we laid the sound in which Eileen Meyer and I did our editor you know late the night after we did the recording because we were so excited we couldn't sleep <laughs> we just got up and fired up the avid remotely and started cutting in the voice and I can't even tell you like how emotional it was because we've been living with Cher Height for you know a long time at that point a couple of years and trying so hard to bring people as close to her as possible and um, it felt like it felt like emotionally we were just making this enormous leap forward um, in that way because of of how Dakota read um, read Cher's words. It was incredible. So uh, you gain a lot of insight in the film from people who knew Cher Height. Um, she was a uh, a complex figure and someone who had left the United States decades ago. Um, and uh, it's unclear to me, uh, those people who knew her in New York in, uh, in the 70s and 80s had maintained contact with her or not. But wh what was it like to get the cooperation of, of the people who knew her? Well, you know, it was kind of incredible. I mean, we started, um, we had this incredible team of producers at NBC News Studios who started doing the outreach. Um, and we started out by looking in the, you know, acknowledgement sections of the books and, and people that she mentioned in her writings in the archive. And um, 
And uh, people that were mentioned in this fantastic article where she threw a party and had a giant cake um, to celebrate everybody who had uh, supported her in making the height report and when they got the 3,000th survey. And she was able, because of her book advance, to pay everyone back. So a lot of people were mentioned and thanked. So we started calling up those people. And sometimes they were very hard to find because they were listed as being Mike Wilson, you know, um, and there's lots of Mike Wilsons. But we sort of navigated our way to, to these folks. And when they heard from us, I mean, I, I would say, I mean, except for one publicist who had had a really bad run-in with Cher um, in, out in L.A., everyone was really wanting to go on the record and talk about her. I think that everyone felt somewhat traumatized by what they had seen happen to her, and they really wanted to set the record straight, um, and that they wanted people to come to know her as a, a human again. And, um, and Mike Wilson, for example, was literally saying to me, please, can you remind people she had a sense of humor? Which I found really moving, because you know you don't think about how when somebody's sort of, their reputation is crushed or they're canceled or whatever, um, how all of those kind of humanizing details about someone kind of get reduced. And, um, and so people were excited to talk about it. I think they were also happy to go back to that time in the early 70s when people were galvanized and working together and, you know, imagining what a better society could be and how relationships between men and women could be better. It was, it was kind of thrilling for people to go back into that era. So we had a, a lot of cooperation. And then people would just keep emerging, you know, like we checked the real estate records for her fabulous apartment she bought after the Height Report came out on Fifth Avenue and discovered that Donna Summer and Gene Simmons were her neighbors in the condominium, you know, that the building had been turned into. And, um, and even Gene Simmons was very happy to talk about Cher Height because he had really fond memories of her, you know, and, um, and also felt really badly about what had happened to her. So it was it was a it was sort of a great sense of like a, a like a reconjuring of the community of people that had been around her and had helped make her work possible. I mean, probably everyone in a documentary is a combination of strengths and vulnerabilities, but Cher Height really had those uh, in extremes, uh, as I experience her in the film, anyways. She's incredibly brave, but also deeply wounded uh, at times. She's a performer, but who also needs to retreat back into herself to um, to heal from that. Did you find it hard to navigate what maybe seems like contradictions uh, of, of the multi-sides of her? Yeah, I'm really happy to hear that all of that complexity came through for you in the film, and that was really important to us you know we felt like it wouldn't be enough to just say here was this great person who did this great thing and she was great you know it really was like she had to be able to be the kind of fully fabulous but very complex and as you say you know wounded individual um that she was and be accepted for that you know just like she herself kind of lived her life that way. She was uncompromising in wanting to express herself the way she wanted to express herself and dress the way she wanted to dress. And she knew it was gonna provoke, you know, negative responses. And she 
felt she had the right to do it anyway. So we kind of felt we needed to present her in a fully complex manner. And it was challenging. Um, it was challenging because, you know, as we would screen early cuts for people, we would find sometimes, especially older people, actually, people kind of my age and older would jump into negative ways of looking at her if she was kind of to this or to that, you know? Um, like in an early cut, people were really kind of not enjoying the Fifth Avenue apartment scene because they were saying like, well, when then you go to this scene where she's got this fancy apartment and, you know, all these fabulous clothes and you're thinking like, does she really care about the work or is this only about fame and, you know, her obsession with herself and things like that. And, uh, and so we would have to go back to the edit and really like scaffold it to make it clear like she had to sue her publisher to get the money, for, you know, for, for that apartment. And this is what the apartment um, psychologically meant to her and how it helped her to sort of survive and, um, and give you, you know, her own typed written list of um, kind of self-help tips for how to, um, how to regain your sense of self when you're you know being beaten around by the patriarchy and and all of that together kind of allowed viewers and subsequent screenings to really feel like they were celebrating um what she had achieved and what she had created with that apartment along with her you know but it, it was tricky to figure it out well i mean as you say that it strikes me how unique she was as a sex researcher in contrast to um predecessors like Masters and Johnson, who like deliberately dressed in lab coats and came out of St. Louis and, you know, tried to um, convey all these really boring trappings uh, around them that somehow made the sex re research more accessible, maybe, to, to, uh, to some people. But uh, Cher Height was not working within the confines of academia. She, you know, she uh, dressed like a model. She was literally a model. And I'm sure that that complicates the, you know, the way she was, was perceived. Completely. I mean, she was completely dealing with the double standard all the time, you know? And, um, and so you could ask yourself, why didn't she just put on a serious suit and a, you know, big pair of glasses and, you know, not wear makeup and, um, to get treated seriously. And she, I think her project was bigger than that. Her project was um, really trying to carve out the space for people to be themselves and express themselves as, as sexual beings, you know, and that's why it was such a gift to, um, I mean, you see over and over again how she's mistreated and uh, because of that on in the media, you know, um, especially after her book up on male sexuality came out. But then we, you know, early in the shooting, we heard that this photographer friend of hers, Iris Brosh, was having a requiem uh, for her in Paris on the first anniversary of her cremation. And we went to see it and to explore the photographs that Iris had taken of Cher um, as kind of a project of reclaiming, reclaiming an icon iconography of, of womanhood that is both intellectual and sexual. That was their project together. And this was after Cher had renounced her citizenship and gone to Europe and really needed healing. And um, and seeing that and seeing these younger French feminists responding to that was just so moving. And it really was like a guiding um, 
framework for us and thinking of who Cher was all the way along, right? Like all the way along, that's who she wanted to be and how she wanted to express herself. Um, and, um, and so what I hope is people watching the film, you know, see it as a, not a problematic character trait, but as kind of a revolutionary act, which I think it was. We see in the film a kind of rise and fall of her experience in the media. I mean, there's, in her early days in the 1970s, she seems to be talking circles around everyone else. She's talking about masturbation and clitoral stimulation and orgasms and, you know, these uh, grown men and women who are interviewing her, like, uh, are feel like they don't even know how to talk about uh, these things on, on television. And then there comes a point, as you chart in the film in the 1980s, where the media seems to collectively turn against her. Um, and there's a series of, of events that you capture in the film where she seems not to be able to go on television without being attacked, whereas in a previous decade, um, she uh, seemed to be mainly celebrated. Uh, and I wonder if you have more insight into, you know, how that turned for her. Yeah, well, I mean, what she thought and wrote about later and, you know, it, it, spending hours and hours watching so much media of her and watching, watching it evolve seems to um, bear this out in my opinion, is that, you know, the backlash to feminism in general, you know, started brewing as, and, and what started becoming especially fervent in the kind of galvanizing and growing religious right. Um, and at the same time, there's kind of a consolidation of the media and, um, and a subsequent rise in this kind of gotcha television you know, where people could turn somebody into kind of a caricature of themselves and attack them and then bat that person around from kind of station to station and channel to channel and know that they were going to, you know, get some kind of um, scintillating, you know, thing happening if they were attacking a person um, on TV. And Cher felt like she was one of the first people to receive that treatment. But, you know, um, <laughs> it's become a hallmark of our culture. And, you know, become a, a big part of what's going on in social media and just it's like something we've never gotten away from. Um, so that that is kind of what I think was going on. But I think that, you know, as you said, she was different than Masters and Johnson. She was not wearing a lab coat. She was different than Dr. Ruth. She wasn't cute. And the biggest thing, I think, was that she was always connecting Sex, sexual equality and her research to politics. And she was sort of saying like, hey, listen, this is a democracy, but half of the people in the democracy don't, you know, achieve orgasm in most of their sexual relationships. So we should change that. How can we have a democracy if, if people are not equal in their own bedrooms? And she really believed in that personalist political idea. And that I think was just incredibly threatening. And when she started doing it around male sexuality and around marriage and the family, in her book on male sexuality and then her third book, Women in Love, it was just way too much. And I think um, by attacking her, 
um, people were attacking. I mean, of course, she wasn't the only feminist who was being attacked in the media, you know, um, but but she was a, a really, you know, great photogenic target. Um, so it's brutal. It's brutal to watch. It is brutal to watch. And, and it's interesting to hear you describe that she was on uh, the early side of this shift in the media, because it does help explain why um, maybe she couldn't see it coming. You know, there's, there's scenes in the film where she walks into situations like an Oprah show where the whole audience is men uh, there to you know respond to her work. And, uh, and I, I can't help but think in those moments, like, why, you know, she's such a smart person. Why is she doing um, uh, this show that seems so potentially self-destructive? But, uh, but from what you say, I, I, I take it that she had this long streak of, of being able to work with the media, but the media was changing in a way that maybe she couldn't see. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's really true. And, you know, I mean, it's, it's obvious, you know, because she, we have a particularly um, intense scene in the film where she goes on um, an Oprah and faces an all-male audience. And, you know, we know that she called up her close friend, Janet Wolf, who's a psychologist, and asked Janet to be, you know, present because she knew it was going to be hard. So, I mean, to me, that kind of thing indicates like she, she did know she was going to suffer um, and she felt it was worth it. You know, I know that they mailed every single man in that audience a copy of the Height Report so that they would read it beforehand. And of course, you can see when you watch the film that, it, that <laughs> it's unclear if any of them actually did read it. But, um, but I can imagine her thinking that was incredible. You know, I mean, her... I, she kept she kept going on on TV shows in Europe and it was better than in the US but it was still hard and she was still constantly asked you know more about her high heels or her nail polish or her own sex life or things like that than she was about about the work but she kept doing it and she kept writing and she kept publishing and she kept trying and um and you know one can see from reading all of her letters and notes and journals from all of those years that she really never lost her belief in people's capacity to, if they could finally kind of hear and understand the truths that she was trying to put forward, um, respond in a way that would be healthy for society. And by the end, she was saying things like, you know, this whole kind of media Christian right thing is either gonna force us back into a traditional family you know, patriarchal family model and not let anyone get out of it um, or they're going to change. And if they force us back into that model and, um, and make it impossible for people to live outside of that, then we're going to be really vulnerable to authoritarianism is what she said, which I think is so interesting, you know, and sadly kind of like um, so much what we've evolved towards. I think she, she saw so many things coming, you know, both both good things, um, like the way that younger generations think about gender and sexuality now, I think have really evolved, um, thanks to her and so many other people. 
but um but also the darker things you know that we've been confronting and i think she i think she was really afraid of something like the you know dobbs decision so you mentioned that she renounced her american citizenship in uh in the 1990s and the film certainly shows why she had good reason to feel frustration with the country, but renouncing your citizenship is, um, you know, t taking it to an extreme. Um, I, do, do you have more insight into, you know, what her thinking was there? I think she was, um, I mean, I don't, I don't, I didn't find any kind of document that laid out in kind of detail her, her thinking around that, um, although she writes about it in her autobiography. And, you know, she had felt that the United States had become, um, you know, a, a place that was hostile to her and in which she couldn't publish or make a living. And, um, and, and I think she wanted to, to indicate that, you know, um, to make a statement about that. Um, I did, I did hear from some friends of hers, it was interesting. A number of her American friends said that they thought she regretted having done that and that she would have wanted to have moved back to New York at various points. Um, I don't think she regretted it as a political statement, but I think, you know, just the, practically speaking, um, there were points when she wanted to move back to the States, but her European friends really disagree. You know, they, they felt that she was very happy living in Europe and that she had, um, you know, was, was living in a place that was open enough to where she could thrive um, more so than in the U.S. And, and um, so, yeah, it's, I mean, I think she wanted, in terms of her own narrative, to align herself with other artists and thinkers who had been persecuted for their iconoclastic ideas and beliefs. Um, I think that was important to her, and I think that might have been a reason why she did that. Well, it, it's fascinating in light of that, that she then makes the decision to store her papers in the United States at Harvard. That's really true. And I think it was really important to her. I think it was really important to her that they be there, you know? Um, I mean, we sh as we show in the film, you know, she had a, um, a really complex and difficult relationship with academia um, and in which she felt she was really subject to a lot of classism and sexism. Um, and could never really find a home there. But yet, you know, she really was a public intellectual. And, um, and so I think the sort of um, reputation and seriousness of the Harvard archive was really important to her. And, um, and, and it, you know, it was, it's just so incredibly wonderful that those things are there. Apparently they were in storage lockers all over the world at that point, you know, her papers, because um, she'd had to kind of move around so much and become kind of nomadic at the end of her life. So, um, yeah, I'm, I'm very grateful um, for us and making the film and for future generations. I mean, I'm excited to think of what hopefully, you know, other people might go in and, and do with all of that material. It's really so extraordinary. I want to ask about uh, you as the filmmaker of this project. When I look at your IMDb credits, um, the other five feature documentaries that that you've done were all done in partnership with co-directors. Um, so what did it mean for you to take on this project as a, as, as a, as a single director? 
Well, you know, um, I love I love collaborating, and I think that's one reason why I love being a documentary filmmaker. It's it's a it's a way to create work in close collaboration with a small group of people, and that's like for me the biggest joy of it. Um, so I've always loved co-directing, and I was I um, confess a little nervous um, to to. <laughs> I, I, I think, yeah, it kind of went against my instinct to do it, you know, um, but in some interesting way, I do feel like the film is kind of bringing me back to impulses I had, you know, when I first got out of film school and I, I asked myself, like, what kind of stories do I want to tell and how do I want to tell them? And, um, I was very interested in stories out of women's history, and um, and I I discovered they were extremely hard to fundraise for or get made, you know, and um, and so uh, it's incredibly meaningful to me to be able to kind of return to that into something that is such a huge part of my own childhood and life, you know, um, and then to be able to kind of build the team the way I wanted to build it, and and you know and make the film the way I wanted to make it. But I will say that, you know, because the film is so heavily archival and was so much constructed in the edit room, you know, I, I, I feel like I had co-directors. I feel like, and actually the producers too, you know, I felt, I felt like it was, it was really like this incredible group of women ranging from, you know, Mary Lampson, um, who's in her 70s, who was a consulting editor with us, and we did some of the editing at her house in Maine, you know, to um, Lauren Schwartzman, who's, you know, in her mid-30s, um, and then, of course, Eileen Meyer, our main editor, who's a little older than Lauren, and, like, you know, all of us were um, kind of creating um, something like what we imagined the consciousness-raising groups of Share Heights time were, in, um, in terms of how we thought of the editing process and how we made the film. And, um, and I just, yeah, I feel, I guess what I'm trying to say is that even though it was like my debut as a solo director, I think I, I still was able to craft a process and a, and a team and an experience um, or set one up that enabled me to be just as collaborative in the making of it. So to bring this back to Share Height, as I watch the film, I'm sure as most people watching the film, there'll be touch points of what she was struggling to convey 50 years ago that echo to us in contemporary times as battles that have not been fully won or uh, uh, teachings that have not been uh, fully absorbed. And I wonder for you, what were the strongest things that, that stood out to you from the work she was doing in the 1970s that still feel absolutely relevant in 2023? I mean, kind of all of it. Like the, obviously the, you know, the bodily autonomy piece is, is urgent. And I've been screening this film in, in states where they have restrictive abortion law now and people are... People are so angry and upset after watching the film because they're connecting it to their their own really traumatic experiences, you know, um, as a result of those laws. So that's that's one obvious place. I think the conversation around female sexuality. I mean, my you know my 
my sons are, um, you know, are constantly sharing with me a lot of the misogyny that they see online as like teenage boys. Um, I think that, um, you know, the double standard is something we're still fighting. People still don't, I mean, you wouldn't believe the number of people I engage with around this project who are being forced to say the word clitoris for the first time, men and women, because they're talking about the project and they don't know how to pronounce it and they feel funny saying it. Can you imagine if like nobody knew how to pronounce the word penis? It's just, it's, it is kind of um, amazing to talk to women who are kind of working in the footsteps of Share Height around those issues today and to see that they still have trouble getting their work seen or funded or written about and, you know, major publications because people are afraid of even talking about female sexuality, which still just takes such a huge toll on, um, on really all of us. So, um, and then I think the, the male, the sort of male isolation and, um, you know, yeah, feel, feeling of isolation and feeling of not being able to express oneself emotionally that Cher was tapping into when she did her survey on male sexuality is, it's hard to say that there's been an enormous amount of progress there, you know? And I do have men coming up to me at screenings all over the country talking to me about that time when they used to be involved in the women's movement or they were really like on board for this kind of experiment that Cher was engaged in of like what would happen if we actually really did try to, you know, break down these barriers and have better conversations and better sex lives. And um, I feel there's an enormous hunger out there for the kind of dialogue that Cher was trying to um, help us engage in. And, um, and uh, yeah, I think the work is just as relevant and alive today as it was then. thank Nicole Noonan for speaking with me. The Disappearance of Cher Height is released by IFC Films. Thanks to our team, series producer Hannah Nordenswan, marketing manager Bella Racklin, and web designer Cross Strategy. Our theme music is composed by Andre Williams, and our executive producer is Raphael Nehausen. I'm Tom Powers. You can follow us on Instagram and subscribe to our free newsletter at purenonfiction.net.